Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined as always by the master resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Busy. I think we both talked about that before we got started. But just keeps getting busier and busier. Yeah. That was, I think our discussion in the last episode was, you know, we'll see you in two weeks unless and uh yeah we had to <laughs> you, you were ready to record last week and i said hey what about one more week <laughs> just so busy but it's good that's uh yeah that's normally a sign of good things you hope so hopefully hopefully there's yeah. a lot of good things going on and we're not busy with useless things no definitely not i would like to be busy with some useless things I'd like to I, be busy on the golf course, but... I, see, that's what I'm saying. I've been approved uh, with my knee uh, like two weeks ago to start doing disc golf stuff. Uh, but I found out what approved means. It means that my two parts of my knee that they had to deal with in surgery are just rock solid. They're good to go. It does not mean, though, that I'm back to normal. Mm-hmm. My leg's still like 50% like half the size of the other one. So it's been hitting the gym, trying to get back to muscle size, you know, lose some weight, all that sort of stuff. So I want to be busy with disc golf stuff. (laughs) It'd be nice. It'd be nice. Someday you and I will be back out to our various, uh, our various golf courses, not thinking about this. That's not true. We think about this all the time. <laughs> we have episodes ready that to go we do. all the time. Uh, we're actually wrapping up this this series. This is the last of this particular series, isn't it? The, Hopefully, the, unless oh, something comes up in this episode and we decide to extend they, it like we always do. One of those books that uh, they said wasn't canon. You know, then we'll have to we'll have to add that yeah. in if that changes uh, between now and uh and a couple weeks from now. Uh, but this is our last uh of the the how to interpret. We dealt with uh the well, we dealt with Pauline literature I think over the course of two episodes. That might be right. We looked at letters, we looked at how Paul uh, and his theology and stuff, either that or we referenced heavily, I can't remember which, it's been too long. But uh, we talked about Paul in our last episode and where he was coming from with his writing and all those things. So hope you found that uh, interesting and helpful in your your studies of you know most of the New Testament there. Uh, today we turn our attention not kind of to a genre, but we're more focused in on a particular book. Uh, We're looking at Revelation today as far as how to interpret, which is apocalyptic in genre. We'll talk about what that means here in just a little while. There are other pieces of apocalyptic literature we have, like Daniel, about half of it is constructed that way. Uh, But Revelation is, uh, is all that way. Uh, or at the very least, like 95%, just the whole thing is just this apocalyptic literature. So we want to spend some time with Revelation in particular, uh, getting some help from a a professor, a a 
theologian scholar who has uh, moved on from uh, this world here, uh, but still still speaks through his uh, his writing. So uh, we'll be using him as uh, a very much a help today because Revelation is notoriously a rather difficult book to interpret. So uh, there'll kind of be a, a third person along our uh, our journey today in looking at this. Before we get going, I want to remind you about strongchurchministries at gmail.com, where you can send questions, comments, thoughts about future episodes. Uh, we will be starting a new series soon, so uh, we, we have an idea for that, but we're always open to uh, going where the listener wants to go. So uh, you can let us know that there at strongchurchministries.gmail.com. Uh, also, thinkingtheologically.org. Uh, in addition to these episodes, we uh, add written articles, that are either adjacent or just uh, kind of standing on their own merits from time to time as well. So be sure to check out thinkingtheologically.org to be uh, able to check those things out, uh, those articles and those other uh, episodes. Uh, and be sure to like us on Facebook to be notified when any of those sorts of things go live, because, you know, why why tune in and listen and not uh, plan to hear what comes next? <laughs> we do, we typically do these in a series format, so uh, you wanna you wanna jump into the whole series, kind of get the big picture there with uh, with all of those things. That being said, we're wrapping up this particular series with how to interpret Revelation, uh, and we're going to uh, use a book called Unlocking Revelation by Dr. Stafford North, a name that might be familiar to you. Uh, he's written, I don't know, man, how many books do you think he's written throughout the course of his, <laughs> his life? A lot, because I think I have half of them on my shelf. Yeah, as, yeah, you just have to have a Stafford North shelf. Um, I, I have tons, tons and tons. Uh, I was, you had him actually as a professor, correct? I did. Yeah. Um, for, he was, uh, by the time I got to Oklahoma Christian, he was semi-retired. So he was still doing okay. some teaching, but not like a full course load. And he had some other administrative responsibilities. Um, and so he was, he was kind of at, he was kind of that at that uh, emeritus type position mm. where, you know, you've, he was there when OC started. So, you know, when you were like a founder and have been teaching ever since you, um, uh, they, they keep you around and that you kind of do whatever you want to do. So that's kind of where nice. he was at. <laughs> uh, I had him as a, a fill in for a preacher training camp week. So I got to hear kind of his perspective for a week on uh, how to structure and uh, put write, put together, study for sermons in particular uh, when I was early high school. So uh, good, good, good guy and very knowledgeable, uh, quite the writer and very much loved uh, study and and teaching. So glad to, glad to be using his material alongside uh, our discussion here today. Uh, we're going to start with five common views of Revelation again, uh, adapting uh, some of the material from his Unlocking Revelation book. Uh, Spencer, what are the five common views of the book of Revelation? Yeah, so as, as we get started, I want to think a little bit first about Revelation as a 
as an entire book. And uh, something to, to add real quick to what you were saying about uh, Stafford North is he he's early on in his career, he taught, uh, I think it was a class at church on Revelation and people really liked it and people really got interested in it. And that's how it led to him teaching Revelation at OC as a course, which I actually took his Daniel and Revelation course. It was both of those classes together. He's written books on both of those as well that kind of began out of uh, the teaching of this in churches. And I know he's gone around and spoken at a lot of different churches. So this is kind of his area of expertise, which is why we're relying a lot on him. Uh, I know it's not, Revelation is not my area of expertise. So I want to say that as we get started. I'm a Gospels guy, and I'm pretty knowledgeable on where we are in terms of scholarship for understanding of Paul, but Revelation is a different thing. Uh, It is an apocalyptic work, uh, which, as you mentioned, we have some pieces of literature throughout the the Bible that use apocalyptic language. Uh, Daniel, uh, Jesus in like Matthew 24 is speaking with apocalyptic language. But when you're talking about a solid work, that's pretty much all apocalyptic. Uh, Revelation is pretty much the only thing that we have that is 90% uh, apocalyptic. And so it's interpreted differently. It's uh, so it's not only different genre, but different author and all of those kinds of things. So we're going to rely on Stafford, who I think does a tremendous, uh, or has a tremendous way of, of dealing with and thinking about the book of Revelation. Stafford is, uh, he was, uh, when I had him, he was an old school guy, uh, very uh, old school Church of Christ. And uh, I know that sometimes that would kind of rub people, especially younger people, the the wrong way about the way that he was old school about some things. <laughs> um, but uh, Revelation is one of those things that he did great, uh, that his his approach to it was uh, uh, phenomenal. And so we're going to definitely take advantage of that and make a little, uh, some uh, additions and some uh, changes and stuff to some of the, the things that he does with revelation. Hmm. Um, as we get started, I also want to mention, uh, thinking about the book of revelation as a whole, uh, authorship is an important question with revelation that is debated. Um, traditionally it's believed that John, the apostle wrote the book of revelation. The author identifies himself as John the seer, which is an interesting phrase, and people tend to associate that with John the apostle, which is a possible thing to do, though I will point out that many scholars will argue uh, two reasons why most scholars don't think that John the apostle was the author of Revelation. First, that the identification as John the seer one could read that as distinguishing John, this John distinguishing himself from the better known John being John, the apostle. 
Sure. Um, that's a possibility. It's a very unique phrase that he's identifying himself as John the seer, which very well could be saying, I'm this John and not that John that you might be more familiar with. That's definitely a possibility. We know that Revelation, because of some of the specific things that is spoken about, is a late book. So very end of the first century, some scholars even want to push it into the second century. I'm not sure it matters if it was late first century, early second century. For some people, they were who everything in the New Testament has to be first century. It's like, well, it can't be second century. Otherwise, it can't be in the Bible. We've created that. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that the Bible has to be written in the first century. We just like that because it's closer connected with the events of of Jesus. But Revelation isn't directly a dealing with the life of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a spokesperson in the book as a deliverer of some revelation to John the seer. But I think that debate into the first century, beginning of the second century is unimportant. But... um, Scholars will point out that if it, even an earlier date at the end of the first century, century puts John the Apostle very, very old. Yeah. Um, and you have the, the issue of what's the likelihood of John the Apostle still being alive when this is written? Because lifespan was a lot shorter in the first century than it is today. So not that it's impossible, But that is a difficulty as well. And I I say that to this isn't an episode about the authorship of Revelation. So we're not going to actually dive into it. I just want to muddy that water a little bit for everyone. Not because I'm mean, but because I don't like simplistic answers. And a lot of the times when I hear people talk about Revelation, it's a simplistic, oh, well, of course it was John the Apostle. I'm not sure about, of course it was. If that's your belief. That's fine. I'm not going to take you to task on that. I just want to point out that it's much more complicated than a simple answer that it's John the Apostle. And if you wanted to argue that on a sophisticated level, there's a lot of things that you would have to deal with. Um, Anyway, that being said, now diving into the, the, the book of, of Revelation, uh, Revelation begins with letters to these seven churches that is, it's a revealing. So John the seer receives this revelation, uh, which is why the book is called Revelation. And the revelation, the, the, the Greek word for revelation is uh, where we get our word apocalypse. Uh, yeah. And so he receives this apocalypse, this revelation uh, from God, from from Jesus, and he writes, he's told to write it all down. And it begins with letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. That's the part that for most readers, that makes sense. It reads like the other letters in the New Testament for the most part. It's a little different because it's a revelation, not like Paul himself writing, but Then it moves into the apocalyptic literature, which is the majority of the book, 90%, something like that. And that's where it gets weird. And that's where the the average reader of the Bible starts to get confused and to have questions and trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. 
and uh, all, all kinds of things start to happen there. So w- when we think about the interpretation of or views of Revelation, we're talking about the apocalyptic section, the, the difficult part. What's going on here with all of this weird stuff and weird images and weird beings and what's going on there? So uh, Stafford opens up his book with, with five common views of, of Revelation, and I think these are still to this day common views that people have in interpreting the apocalyptic section of Revelation. First is that it's talking about the the fall of Rome, so it's specifically contextually within the Roman Empire. Some people say it is the destruction of Jerusalem, and part of that connection is, is if you go to passages such as Matthew 24, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem with very apocalyptic language that for a a reader and you're thinking about that language, it might remind you if you've read Revelation before. There's some similarities there because it's the same type of genre that Jesus is speaking in that's being written in Revelation. So uh, some will say it's the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Some have argued that it foretells world history, so it's not limited to the events of the Roman Empire, so the time of writing, but it's events that have been throughout history. And this is where you start getting to people, maybe you see people even on the news or on social media, uh, something happens. Uh, We go to war, somebody's elected president, and they point to Revelation as, well, oh, it predicted that this was going to happen. Or even discussion of history, I've seen. So World War II, Hitler, Nazi Germany, I've seen people say, well, that was predicted. Go to Revelation. So the foretelling of world history there. Um, You even now... If any of you are on on TikTok, the there's this di- discovery of some w- rust stuff on the moon, and people have traced that back to predictions in the Bible of the moon turning red. Uh, so that's happening <laughs> right now that. with <laughs> apocalyptic no literature. Like today, as of recording, is when I was. Uh, my uh, girlfriend showed this to me and was like, hey, you, you might want to discuss this in one of your videos. I didn't even know it was a trending thing. Not on my side of TikTok, but it's on hers. And <laughs> so she showed me some videos uh, just today. So that's still happening, even in present things that we understand, not with Revelation, but with the kind of language that's used in Revelation. Yeah. Uh, some people believe it to be principles. So the way that kingdoms and nations work. So it was specifically talking about the Roman Empire, but there are some principles about the way that sin and evil and maybe even God work within kingdoms that can be applied to any kingdom or any nation. So there's some principles here that can then be applied elsewhere. And finally, uh, future time. So it's talking about something that has yet to happen. So this is your end time things. All of this has yet to happen and it will happen and then the end will come. And that's where you get people looking again at events that are happening in the world. Somebody elected president, some war, 
and saying that this is what Revelation is talking about here or there, and this is how we know we're at the beginning of end times. You're even seeing that with some of the moon stuff right now. I've seen people, this is a sign of the end times. And sometimes you get that with the book of, of Revelation. So those are the five primary views. As we're going to work through and, and argue, uh, Jack and I are on the, the same page here as a interpretation of Revelation as the, that first option, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire, that Revelation is contextual to the time and the events in which it was being written, whether it's the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, but the events that are going on with in the Roman Empire, which controlled the world at that point in time, that that's the that's the context in which these events are not only or that that's the context in which Revelation is speaking about. And there's some future things that will happen, but it's a carrying out of the events that are currently going on. So it's contextual yeah. within the, the time of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Um I, I will say I have heard some good uh, arguments for point two, the destruction of Jerusalem. But even even in that, you're still the the setting, like around the book, still uh, has to do with Rome. It's just more focused on a thing, an area uh, within that that empire. That being said. Uh, a lot of these other points, especially, especially, I, I had no idea about the moon stuff. Uh, that's happening. Oh yeah, right get, now. You, that, that's why you should be on TikTok. <laughs> it's it's amazing, man. Um, but I so I taught I taught uh, Revelation just a few months ago for about thirteen weeks, which is not long enough. Um, but even in all of that, that's when a lot of the uh, stuff in the Middle East that's going on right now st- started that flare up again. Uh, and a lot of people point to revelation during that too and go, Oh, look, you know, here it is again, kind of the, it's the end here it is and all this stuff. Uh, and to that, to that point, there's a very, very important present application that we can take from revelation that, uh, if we make, if we make this book or any book, and we've talked about this and all of our other interpretations, we, if we take this or any book and make it all about us, then we, we're going to get ourselves in a lot of trouble, uh, and we're going to miss probably completely the point uh, of what is being written down for us. So um, so, so I, I, I say all of that to say I have good uh, – I, I, I have – I know a number of people that are like, well, it's not fall Rome, it's destruction of Jerusalem, all those sorts of things. Okay, sure. I'm fine with either one of those things. I think there's good reasons for both sides. I think there is some future stuff that it points to, but it's not a book about that. It is it is this book so needed for these people that are going through suffering, God's people going through suffering and what they are what they need to keep in mind uh, as all of that stuff is happening. We get that first, then we can then we can understand why it matters to us. So, uh, and I think that'll that'll be uh born out of the the work that we're about to do here which uh we'll see how quick this goes 
uh, Stafford, you know, obviously we're borrowing his book and his book here, uh, held, uh, seven keys to unlocking revelation keys be often being the metaphor for people teaching this book, uh, how, how to unlock, uh, the difficulty that is revelation. Uh, but he identifies seven keys that are important to understand, uh, that'll then help you. And again, like Spencer said, this is an adaptation because there are some things where we're going to look and go, we think a little bit more this way, or, you know, this is, this is more the consideration under these points by scholarship or whatever. Uh, but the first key is this, that revelation is written in symbols. Uh, what do we want to make clear kind of about that point that revelation is written in symbols? Why does that matter? What's that mean? Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And I want to refer you back to, I don't know how many episodes now we've talked, talked about apocalypticism. I know. Yeah. I know. I, I think we had an individual episode on it. We've talked about it a lot as the worldview of, of Paul and yeah. the early church and of Jesus. And there's here, here's some keys to apocalypticism as a worldview and apocalypticism literature in particular, which mm. is produced out of an apocalyptic worldview. So this is a little bit of an oversimplification, oversimplification, because I think they are two things that you really need to define individually. And I think we've done that in the past. So I'm kind of bringing this together because when you think about symbols, someone with an apocalyptic worldview isn't necessarily thinking about life in symbols. But when they're writing these things down, it gets expressed symbolically, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. just realize that d distinction. But a, a lot of characteristics about apocalyptic literature, literature in particular, is the existence of, of visions or of something to do with the, the heavenly realm being presented to us. So... For example, I think we've talked about books in the Pseudepigrapha that are apocalyptic, like the book of Enoch. Uh, Enoch is a character in the Old Testament who doesn't die. He just gets taken up into heaven. Right. So he becomes kind of a representative of someone who can reveal the heavenly realm to us because he was taken up there. He never yeah. died. Yeah. And so... Enoch reveals things to us about what is going on in the heavenly realm. And you see at the beginning of Revelation that John the seer receives this vision from God. So there's something that we can't see that is being revealed from the, the heavens, from up there somewhere. It is now being revealed down to us, right? So that is a... Uh, concept that is present in most apocalyptic literature. You go back and you look at Daniel, it's the same thing. Daniel receives these these visions. There are things that are being revealed to him from heaven. A lot of the time it is done in symbols. It, it's symbolic things that are representations of these uh, heavenly realities. Now, in terms of revelation, I know people have debated 
some people have argued that the symbols in Revelation are more for are for protection, that John didn't lay things out directly because it was an attack on the Roman Empire and he could get himself into trouble. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's possible. I'm not saying that wasn't a consideration, sure. but John's definitely writing within a genre that was known for using symbolic language. So I would be careful going there, even though, you know, we can't say without a doubt that that wasn't part of what was going on. But I doubt that was primarily what was going on because he's definitely writing within this larger genre. Uh, Heavenly realities, as I mentioned, the the revealing through revelation a lot of the times of things that are going on that we can't see. So heavenly realities. And again, sometimes things that are going to take place. And a lot of the times the things that are going to take place are also connected with heavenly realities. The mm-hmm. the powers, yeah. whether good or bad, are going to do this or that. And that leads to the last thing, this cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil. That, that is a, a central piece, I think, to an apocalyptic worldview. Is that there's this battle going on between the forces of good and the forces of evil. We've talked about that in Paul particularly in Ephesians, when he says things like in chapter 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and authorities in the heavenly realm. Right. So uh, Paul, uh, Jesus, we see in their language, right, that um, they believe that there's this cosmic battle between forces of good and forces of evil that is presently going on. And again, you, you see that in, in Revelation, you, uh, regardless of, of how you interpret individual pieces of it, right? The, there's good forces and there's evil forces in Revelation. That, that's probably obvious to even the casual reader. And that is, again, a reflection of the book of Revelation as apocalyptic literature. And so it's going to to use symbols, it's going to use metaphors to talk about these cosmic realities that are going on uh, because of the type of literature it is. So I stress the literature, if, if you got Stafford's book, which I think would be helpful for anyone wanting to teach Revelation, he talks yeah. about it being written in symbols, he talks a little bit about apocalyptic literature, but he doesn't dive that far into it. There's, And I think it would it's helpful to have maybe a, a deeper understanding of the type of literature than yes. Stafford provides in the, the, the book, though he, he mentions it as leading to the symbolic language. Right. Um, a few things to add here. I probably won't have as much in future comments, but there's a, there's just a lot coming to mind. Um, uh, so one, the cosmic battle between the forces of uh, good and evil, I think would probably make for a good uh, podcast series. Maybe we should do that. Maybe next. we should. Maybe we will be. Uh, hint, hint. Um, okay, and then alongside all of that, like the the uh, the nature of apocalyptic literature for us again outside of the few like windows that we have uh just as bible readers uh, let's say you are you know daily bible reader you've read through your bible a bunch of time whatever you have engaged with it daniel especially 
but like Isaiah has some, Ezekiel has some, uh, it, it shows up and Joel has some, or there's uh, Psalms has some, just, you know, so little bits here and there. Uh, and, and Matthew uh, 24, you got Jesus using it and all those things. So you you engage with it, but we typically don't, unless you're going into just more uh, theology courses, things like that. Uh, we're not familiar very much with the intertestamental stuff like Enoch, like Jubilees, like a bunch of these other books that are extremely apocalyptic. And we forget that the the ancient reader was heavily engaged with this type of literature. Like this was not a this was not a weird and it might have been a weird read for them, but it's it was not as weird as it is to us because they're they're coming to it and going, oh, gotcha, it's written this way because they have a, a, a many other things written that way uh, that they were very familiar with. Uh, something that we forget because we don't engage with those you know non Bible books, those non canon books, even though they they very much did, uh, and it was a part of their literary reality. And then the other side of the, the last thing that I want to throw in with all of this, uh, especially to the, like, like you said, it's possible that this is written in symbols in an attempt to keep the revelation unrevealed, so to speak, to people like the Romans. Um, but there seems to be more of a, a thrust towards, and I think this is I, we agree on this, I believe, uh, that the symbols are there because the symbols are uh, reused, repurposing of symbols that appear within our Old Testament. Uh, and one of the things when I was teaching through Revelation last year, that was the point that I came back over and over again was Revelation is hard to understand because we don't understand our Old Testament very well. Uh, but if if we understood uh, Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and those books that we skip over or heavy, very long, very involved sorts of books. But if we had a good understanding of those things, then when we come to Revelation, we would go, I remember reading that. I remember Ezekiel talking about that. I remember Isaiah talking about that. I remember, and the author, whichever John it might be, or, you know, is very much aware of those writings and very much drawing on those as every New Testament writer does. They're building on the foundation of the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the foundation uh, of the things that they're writing. Uh, so when you go to go to Revelation and you see all this weird imagery, understand like it's not the first time. <laughs> it's not the first time this stuff's been used. Stuff like this has appeared uh, many times before. Like I said, I shouldn't have as many comments on the future stuff, but I had a lot there. <laughs> so thank you for indulging me, Spencer, on the <laughs> as your co-host well, here. And and when you think about um, the the repurposing, it it would be mm-hmm. useful. Uh, the 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 way that John writes Revelation would be something that would be understood primarily by people with a heritage that's connected to the Old Testament. 
like you said. So yes. when, yeah. when when you think about who would understand this, would an average Roman understand Revelation? Well, probably not, at least not fully, not because that was the intention, but because of how connected the imagery is to a Jewish heritage, which the first Christians were Jews. Gentile Christians would have been inundated with the Old Testament scriptures, so, so they would have had to find connection to the Jewish heritage. Yeah. Not to mention the number, and we don't know how many, but the number of Gentile Christians who were some sort of proselytes beforehand, who had some kind of connection to the Jewish yeah. Yeah. heritage. So that, that's something else to, to keep in mind as well, that it's not, when, when people say that it's not completely off base, that, that's, pro, that's probably not the primary purpose, but you can kind of understand how you may get there because sure. of yeah. the yeah. language that's used and where it's coming from. Apocalyptic worldview is a very Jewish worldview. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so point one or key number one uh, is about the the genre. Point two, I keep saying point, key two uh, is, about the, is about the text here. Uh, Revelation will shortly come to pass, uh, which is, well, what, what does that mean? Because it's, uh, how often does that show up throughout the book? And, and what, why, what's it mean? Why is it there? Eight, uh, Stafford points out eight times that it shows up throughout the beginning and end. Yeah. Uh, Chapter one, chapter three, and then multiple times in chapter twenty-two. So the so end bookends, yeah, of the, the the book. The book begins and ends with this statement that these things are shortly to come to pass, which lends to the suggestion that what is taking place here is something that's contextual. That th- these things are happening or soon to happen. Not that we're talking about things that are going to happen in the future. We're not talking about World War II. We're not talking about the United right. States. We're not talking about anything like that. Now, yeah, let me give a little caveat here that's just important to think about. I think as we look at some of these other things it becomes obvious that it's these events are shortly going to come to pass because we're talking about the Roman Empire. But if all we had was this key to, we wouldn't have very much. And the reason that I say that is I think we would be torn between Roman Empire and the end of time. Because it seems to me, and I think most scholars would be in agreement with this, that early Christians believed that the end of the world, Jesus' second coming, was going to come soon in their lifetime. The Thessalonians, for example, some of them even stopped working because of their belief. And it seems that Paul even thought that. In in Thessalonians, though, he's like, but that's not an excuse not to work. Right. Is kind of where he comes from. And that we don't know exactly when it, Jesus is going to come back, but I think Paul thought it's, it is going to be relatively soon. And so th- with that worldview, you could s- argue that 
it's talking about the end of the world because it was believed that the end of the world will come shortly. So what, what I think this key eliminates is interpreting Revelation as uh, something about future events minus the end of the world. So like I said, about wars like World War II or something like that. that, that that's not what we're talking about. Uh, just from this point, you could make the argument, maybe uh, Jerusalem that gets destroyed for a second time later on, the temple's already been destroyed, but then more destruction of Jerusalem comes in the second century. So maybe you could say that because that comes relatively shortly. Maybe you could say the end of the world because most early Christians believed that the end of the world was going to come fairly shortly. Or you can be talking specifically about the Roman Empire, because that's going to happen fairly shortly as well. So mm. uh, just this, and my point is, is that as we look at some of these keys, I think it narrows down how Revelation can be interpreted. And this one narrows it down, but not all the way to the Roman Empire. Not yet, I don't think. But it does eliminate some of our options. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, the, I, I think that's the, well, to use the phrase we've been using, I think that's a very important key here is that, especially with this phrase, um, to understand that it's not that there's nothing future oriented, but I, one, one of the best pieces of Bible study advice I got was uh, from a book called Grasping God's Word, which if you are listening to this and you're like, hey, I, I want to be a better Bible student and things like that, uh, that's, that's a tremendous book to get, Grasping God's Word. It's very much a workbook as well as, uh, as, well as something that is a teaching tool for you. Um, but one of the things that it does very well is it stresses you have to grasp the text in their town, and then you go through a few other steps before you grasp it in, in yours. Uh, and so it's not that there isn't future importance, or in our case, modern-day importance as well to these books, but it, it starts with them, what this means to them, and if they're being told this will shortly come to pass— like, well, what we shouldn't do with Revelation is go, man, all this stuff is way ahead in the future. Well, wh then why is <laughs> why does it say that in the beginning and the end of the book? It seems very important to express the idea and then to return to the idea to, to sum it up at the very end. So, uh, okay, number three uh, key here, Revela Revelation is given to comfort persecuted Christians. Uh, what do we want to say about that? In his book... Stafford gives this quote by one commentator that the blood of Christians is on every page. Mm -hmm. So we give a couple of, uh, of examples in the show notes. Uh, chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, chapter 7, and verse 14, about the discussion of Christians being persecuted, that this is, is written to... Christians that are dealing with a time of persecution. And so however we want to interpret this, it's like you said, understand it in its own town first. Like John is writing to Christians who are presently being persecuted. What's the point for them? 
they're the primary audience, not us. So think about why would a prediction of the second world war mean anything to Christians being persecuted at the end of the first century? Um, I, I don't yeah. know about you, but I can't come up with a reason how that would nope. be helpful. Got nothing. And that just goes back to the, let's, it, whatever we come up with, it has to be comfort to persecuted Christians. Yes. And this also, just to, to mention a little bit about what you will find if you read some uh, more scholarly works on Revelation, is... The, the historical evidence for widespread Christian persecution by the Roman Empire is not great. We don't have a lot of evidence outside of the Bible talking about persecution. Now, mm. localized persecution is a different question. So sure. you're, you're reading something like uh, First and Second Peter deals with a persecuted community. It seems like um, Philippians, it seems they're dealing with some kind of pagan persecution. But those instances were talking about localized persecution, like in Philippi, not anywhere else. That is what I sure. mean by localized. So there's evidence in the New Testament of localized persecution. When you're talking about widespread empire persecution, not that it didn't happen, because it, it's hard to, to argue something from silence. Yeah. Note people with the Church of Christ heritage. Uh, <laughs> we're experts at that. You, you can't... It, it's it's impossible to argue something for sure from silence. Well, yeah. we don't have anything that says that they persecuted Christians widespread, so they didn't. Well, that's not what it means. It means nobody wrote it down. So... But what that also means is you have to be cautious. It's yeah. It, it's hard to assert for certain that they did or they didn't when you don't have evidence. And yeah. so you have to be cautious with how you move on from there. Now, we do have evidence of some uh, certain emperors. Uh, Nero did some persecution, not quite as widespread as was once thought to be. Uh, Domitian did some widespread persecution of, of Christians, but and so we know it, it happened, not maybe as much or as broadly as most Christians today think, which I, I think is something important to realize is that sometimes we think that, oh, all Christians everywhere were always being persecuted. There's not really evidence to support that more localized persecution, some emperors having some issue with, with Christians, but then again, not quite doing empire-wide persecutions like we might think. So uh, that also, this also lends into the, the dating of the book because there's debate, was this really happening like Revelation seems to present it at the end of the first century or was this a second century phenomenon? So there's mm. debate about how that persecution worked out. But for the general interpretation of Revelation, I'm not sure any of those matter because we know that there was localized persecution. We know that John is writing to a group of Christians that he knows are being persecuted, whether or not that's local or empire-wide. Um, 
I'm not sure it it's that important. He connects it to the Roman Empire and the beliefs of the Roman Empire. And there are, as we're going to talk about, there are at least some predictions of some kings that are going to do some things that are harmful to Christians, which we know did happen, maybe just not as bad as most Christians think. And so I think some of those finer details, while on a scholarly level, are important things to delve into. Uh, for us and our average interpretation, I, I'm not sure it's that important for the person in the pew. But important, nevertheless, I think for us to know that those debates are out there. So on the one hand, we don't speak with too much confidence about this was going on. And so we're able to work through some of the things that we see if we're reading some literature on the book of Revelation. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yes. Now, the other, uh, alongside all of that, uh, very much persecution going on within this book and very much not, well, what I was thinking initially was, uh, first, the blood of Christians on every page. Yeah, and that's... Revelation, when you get past kind of the symbolism and stuff to reading some of these things, you go, man, this seems bleak. And it and it is for half of the book. <laughs> there, a lot of the symbols are very sad and upsetting. And then you realize like, oh, those things, those things do not win. Um, and that's that, that cosmic battle and physical version of that too you know it's all behind that uh, but the other part of this is it when you understand the old testament and then you see the symbols from the old testament in revelation then you already know what's up you know that this is a book of oh this is a book about persecution because a lot of the symbols that are borrowed are during times of either during exile or or warring or talking about times when that is going to be prevalent uh, for them. And so the symbols give away what the book's about, uh, that there is persecution taking place, but God is going to do this thing that will shortly come to pass. He's, he's going to solve this problem uh, here throughout the book. Uh, just, again, keep it keep it uh, connected to the original audience as much as you possibly can. Uh, and the book becomes a lot easier to understand. And by the way, a lot more, a lot richer than if you just jump right into our story and bring it into trying to apply it here uh, first. Okay. Key number four, revelation identify. So <laughs> Before I say that, so uh, very straightforward thus far, Revelation's written in symbols. Revelation will certainly come to pass. Revelation is given to comfort persecuted Christians. Got it. Easy to follow. His fourth key, Revelation identifies the dragon and two beasts. Okay, we've got a lot here. Uh, what, what about the dragon and two beasts? What do we need to know? So you're reading through Revelation and... These are three of the main evil characters. You have this dragon and you have this these two beasts that are doing the evil things in the apocalyptic yeah. section of Revelation. And this is the part where I think our options of interpretation begin to narrow. Yeah. Because it I, I think it ends up being fairly specific what's going on here. So 
the, the dragon is Satan. Uh, chapter 12 and verse 9, chapter 20 and verse 2 specifically identify the dragon as, as Satan. So uh, that's pretty straightforward. That's easy to understand. The dragon is Satan. Uh, the first beast seems to be the Roman Empire. So, so here's the evidence for that. In chapters 12 and 13, the first beast is used by Satan to persecute the church. So we know that it's some agent uh, that's being used by Satan in order to persecute or to harm uh, the, the church. Uh, the first beast has ten horns on seven heads, each with a crown, the body of a leopard, mouth of a lion, paws of a bear. Uh, you mentioned Old Testament imagery. Here's a prime example. Uh, it's th the connection of these animals and the horns take us back to the four beasts in Daniel 7. It's the same imagery. It's just kind of all consolidated in one beast now. Where you yeah. had multiple in Daniel, it's all kind of consolidated in one. In Daniel, everyone's kind of in agreement. It's talking about kingdoms and kings. And all this imagery is consolidated into one beast in Revelation, relying on that imagery in Daniel, which seems to suggest that the beast is also a kingdom and kings, because mm -hmm. that's what the imagery meant in Daniel and is being repurposed here in Revelation. Uh, in Daniel, uh, uh, Revelation 13, 6 and 7, we're told that the first be beast blasphemes God. So, again, worker of Satan, makes war on the saints against Christian, reigns over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Uh, the inhabitants of the world worship the beast. Think about the time that this is being written. Who reigns over all the people of the world? Well, it's the Roman Empire. And Roman citizens thought very highly of the Roman Empire. You could say... They worshipped the Roman Empire. Uh, and then in chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, it talks about the heads are, represent kings. Five kings have already reigned, one is currently reigning, and one will yet to reign. You take all this together, you know, right, that we're talking about a kingdom, and we're talking about kings that's ruling over the world. So going back to what you mentioned about interpreting it in its own city, in its own time, yeah. uh, the, the only thing at the time of the writing that it could be referring to is the Roman Empire. It's the only empire, only kings, only ruling nation that matters at this point in world history. And so all of that being take to, taken together, I think that makes it fairly obvious that John's talking about the Roman Empire. If we want to stay within the context and think about the, what is, does this mean to the community that John is writing to that's being persecuted? Well, uh, if, if, if the Roman Empire and certain kings are behind at least some localized persecution, Roman authorities are behind some localized persecution at the very minimum, then th the only kingdom and kings that we could be talking about is the Roman Empire. Now, uh, the second beast, I think, becomes a little bit more difficult. Uh, the second beast is said in Revelation to rise and fall with the first beast. So it's connected to the first. So if the first is the Roman Empire, it's connected in some way to the first. Uh, 
It exercises authority in sight of the first beast. So it's in service to the first beast or the Roman Empire. It speaks like a dragon, the dragon being Satan. So it's a tool of Satan. It speaks on behalf of Satan. It is something else that is used by Satan. It sets up images of the heads of the beast, which are kings, remember, and forces people to worship them. So worship the the kings of Rome. Stafford identifies this as the cult of emperor worship. So the rise of emperors being worshipped within the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of fits the, the second beast because the, the worship of Roman emperors is in service to Rome. Uh, it's leading people, Satan's using it to lead people to worship something other than God. And it fits with the idea of setting up the heads or the kings and making people worship them. So uh, the, the worship of kings in the Roman Empire fit. The, the one thing that makes it difficult, again, is our historical understanding of how widespread was this. And yeah. my understanding, at least, again, not an expert, is that we don't have a ton of evidence for widespread worship of emperors. We know that for most of Rome's history, emperors were deified, but it was after death. And mm. that changes. I believe it's with Domitian is kind of the first one to begin to be worshipped during his lifetime. Um, And so you do see some of this. It's not that we don't have evidence that it happened. We we do have some. But the question being, how widespread was this? Which I think that leans a little difficulty of, well, maybe there are some other ways to interpret the second beast because of how widespread was the worship of the emperor? Was this actually enforced or was it just one emperor trying to elevate himself to the place of God? Like what... Just because we don't have a ton of historical evidence, which again goes back to the difficulty of working from silence, yeah, of just yeah. being cautious. So uh, I, I don't have a problem with Stafford's interpretation. Uh, just again, I would add the the caution there of let's not stand too firmly on that interpretation, though it does seem to fit. Yeah, uh, and I think one of the things that now we're getting into, especially with this discussion. Um, is it like I said at the beginning? You know, I've uh, heard compelling reasons to think destruction of Jerusalem as well, and all that sort of stuff. Um, though Rome, obviously, that's taking place within Roman context. At any rate, um, one of one of the places where we get really tripped up in Revelation that we don't need to is, uh, and Spencer's been saying it the whole way through this of there are a lot of a lot of specifics where we can go well it maybe it's this individual well okay but it might be this one over here but either way you know what is it well okay it's an it's an emperor and that matches with what we see in Daniel and it's what Daniel's dealing with that's what the symbol means there uh it's dealing with persecution okay well how widespread is that well you know this uh, Okay, but it is still it's persecution. Mm-hmm. There's comfort. It, all of the major themes you can uh, the major themes are the things that are relatively easily identifiable. Identifiable. It's the specifics within it where we get really caught up. Unfortunately, people try to rush to the specific parts and then extrapolate from there. 
instead of going, no, that doesn't, that doesn't fit the theme. That this is the theme. This is the overall, this, this has to be that. So it's got to fit within this framework, yeah. whether it's this guy or that guy, it's got to fit here. So like you said, the prime example of sh is trying to identify the Kings that John's talking about because mm -hmm. it, the, the, the counting doesn't exactly work. Right. 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 And that's one of the things of we can speculate, but at the end of the day, firmly identifying who every character, every king is, doesn't matter. It, it, the, it doesn't change the point. Right. We know that they're kings. We know that they're emperors. We know that there's persecution. How exactly that works, we can't fully know because we weren't there. And maybe at some point we'll do an episode on the the way to do historical research because the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, there's a limitation in how we're able to do history having not been there yeah and yeah so it's just a caution to anyone studying or teaching revelation don't get bogged down uh too much in the details because yeah, and <laughs> unless you're writing a scholarly work on it then that's your job but yes. otherwise Yes. Don't worry about it. Yeah, and certainly don't like fixate on a detail and then extrapolate outward from there. Identify the major themes, and then then you can play in the the dirt. But identify that you're in a dirt patch first. <laughs> like what I find here has to fit within this. Do do that work first. Okay. Uh, next one here, another key that I find very interesting uh, and funny. <laughs> just as it fits within this whole uh, list of seven here. Revelation identifies the harlot who is Babylon. Okay, uh, there's, a, there's a discussion, a couple, a couple discussions about uh, the horror of Babylon, the harlot, uh, within the book of Revelation. It's a place where people get tripped up. Uh, what, what is uh, said there about the, the harlot here who so, is Babylon? In chapter 17, the harlot is discussed, and we're told that the harlot is a, quote, great city, commits fornication with kings, rules the first beast, mm. is dressed luxuriously in purple and scarlet and wears precious jewels, and holds a cup filled with the blood of saints. Mm. The, the, the harlot, as Stafford interprets it, and I would agree with him, seems to be the city of Rome, because we're talking about a great city that rules the first beast. And if the first beast is the Roman Empire, what city rules the first beast? And you have this luxurious dressing, so purple, scarlet, jewels, which is just representative yeah. of royalty. Right. Well, the capital city of the Roman Empire, where the king who rules Rome sits and lives and rules. It, Rome. Uh, as a representative of the, yeah. the first beast and of the, the Roman Empire. I think that one is, is fairly straightforward. And again, it, it goes back to if the harlot is a great city connected to the first beast, that continues to make sense of the first beast being a nation or empire. Not just the way the first beast is described, yeah. not just its connection to Daniel, but also the discussion of the harlot. It seems to all be the idea of we're talking about some kingdom yeah. with kings and rulers. And uh, in its context, Rome and the Roman Empire. Yeah. And, you know, admittedly, 
we're we're getting all of this to us very uh, unique literary style and these fantastical images of things, and then it's it, the the solution or the answer to what is being depicted is almost sort of a letdown. Like it's very anticlimactic. Of yeah, okay, City of Rome, really, but you have to remember especially that last point, holds a cup filled with the blood of the saints. These Christians reading this are not like, oh man, I hope this is a good read. You know, we're excited for this letter. It's, th- this letter s- kind of sucks <laughs> in a lot of it. Of We're writing to an audience here. This is being written to an audience who is either under threat of death themselves from persecution. They probably know people maybe with even even within their own family that have suffered persecution and died. Uh, and this book is, again, one of those keys, written as a comfort to them. And what they need to know is that this these beasts, these things that are doing this are not going to be able to do this forever. That's That's the point. That's the point. And so if we ever get to a thing and go, yeah, but... Look at the description of this thing, and yeah, there's a there's a uh, company that exists today that uses their logo, and it looks an awful lot like no, no. <laughs> it's for these people who are very much concerned about their own living, uh, those that have passed away that they know that have suffered under these sorts of things, and they're in need of comfort. And so you're going to get these anticlimactic sort of the the beast is this. That the dragon's this, the harlot's this, so that they can know it's it's gonna be okay. It's not gonna go unaddressed. God's God's not abandoned you. He's he's going to bring about victory. So anyway, keep don't don't lose the don't lose the point for the details or because it's uh, an exciting read. Uh, there's you gotta gotta hold fast to the point. Okay, we're getting long here. Mostly my fault. I added a lot that's not on these notes. Uh, key number six: Revelation identifies the one thousand two hundred sixty days. Uh, what do we want to say about that? So I, I'm gonna in my discussion, I'm gonna combine six and seven. I'm gonna kind of talk about okay. them yeah, yeah. consecutively because I think that makes the most sense. So yes. there's this discussion of. Uh, uh, 1260 days in Revelation, which is the it, it's the period of time during which the Roman Empire will persecute the church. So when you've identified these characters, what you see is that Satan is using the Roman Empire, the, the first beast, and the Roman Empire uses the, the, the second beast, uh, which is the, the worship of the empire, the, the worship of, of Rome, of uh, a particular emperor, uh, the, 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 the ruling, uh, harlot that kind of leading this charge that the, the city of Rome, all of this, again, it goes back to, we're speaking to persecuted Christians that are being persecuted, uh, in some form or fashion mm. by the Roman empire. Satan is sitting behind this. So there's the apocalyptic, right? The, the cosmic battle that's going on. There are these forces of evil that is sitting behind the experience of these, these Christians. And uh, many Christians are martyred. They, they lose their lives at, at the hands of the Roman Empire because of their faith. 
So we're writing to them, trying to encourage them. And you kind of lay out, hey, yes, all of this evil is happening. And Satan, the, the spiritual, these sp evil spiritual forces is what is sitting behind all of this evil that's going on. But there's a finite amount of time in which this is, this is going to take place. The 1260 days, metaphorical for this isn't going to happen forever. It's eventually going to come to an end. Particularly, God's not going to allow this to happen forever. And here is where the seventh point, or the seventh key, Revelation identifies the, the kingdom. Uh, a kingdom is going to come. God is going to uh, establish a, a kingdom. God is going to do something about the, the evil that is taking place. And this kingdom is going to be different than the kingdoms of the world. It's going to be different than the kingdom of the, the Roman Empire. And uh, th this is where we're going to be a little different than, than Stafford. We're approaching this with a new creation theology that the, the kingdom is, is new creation. We're not just talking about an earthly kingdom versus a spiritual kingdom, but that we're talking about a kingdom that ultimately, when it's fully established, Revelation 21, is going to be a new creation. New Jerusalem is going to come down. We talked about that. Uh, Stafford uh, was not approaching it based upon new creation theology. So he talks about earthly kingdom versus spiritual kingdom. I'm not a big fan of that language. And I will say the reason is because the, the new creation theology was coming into Churches of Christ. It was kind of a new thing very late within the last 10 years of Stafford's life. And having known him, I knew that that was something that he was studying and considering a lot. But it was just not something that was prevalent or talked about for most of his career, something that came towards the end of his life, something that he still wanted to study and change some of his views on things, uh, which is commendable for doing that at his age mm -hmm. and being yeah. willing to, to do that. And so it's no fault of his own. It's like any of us, when history looks back on us, it's going to see the mistakes that we made uh, or the things that we didn't know. And I think this is just one of the, the cases of uh, just not having the, the, the opportunity to study this like uh, Jack and I are privileged to be able to because of the time that we were born and the time that, that we live. So I don't think it's spiritual versus earthly kingdom. I think it's uh, evil kingdoms like the Roman Empire in comparison to the new creation kingdom of the spirit uh, of, of God. So uh, there at the end, again, we have a little bit of looking forward, but the, the encouragement here is it's not going to happen forever. 1260 days. Eventually this persecution, God's going to bring it to an end relatively soon. Yeah. But ultimately God is going to deal with evil entirely. God, eventually the, the evil being perpetuated by the Roman Empire is going to end, but at the end of time, God's going to deal with evil forever. Uh, Satan and evil, it's all going to be thrown into the pit of fire, as Revelation talks about. A new kingdom is going to be established, new Jerusalem is going to come down, and God's going to enter in, uh, we're going to enter into a new creation. There's going to be a return to Eden, everything is going to be made new, Sin and evil are going to be done with once and for all. So the hope in Revelation is not just that the Roman Empire is going to stop persecuting you sometime soon. But it's that God's eventually going to win the victory. 
Yeah. And then this is where it connects uh, directly to the persecuted Christians of if you remain faithful, even to the point of death, as the Roman Empire is doing this for the short period of time, you will be rewarded in the kingdom that is to come when God establishes the new creation. And that's how, in the context, this book gives hope to Christians who are being persecuted. Not just, you're not going to have to deal with this forever, but you're going to be rewarded in the new creation for remaining faithful, even to the point of death. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that that's... that's think that message that uh or that application that continues to uh, affect us today and alongside that the point that you made about stafford uh even at uh the age that he was at at the level that he had been at of of uh what's what's the quote uh a quote from a book i read recently and somebody else shared it as well uh, on facebook this week uh that we never we never master the text. The text is there to master us. Uh, and somebody who was involved in teaching for as long as he was within a university uh, level that he was to go, oh, I should study this more. I should continue to like look into things and, and do all of that is exactly the kind of spirit that we hope to uh, encourage with with this podcast uh, of talking about uh, the the joy of study, how to study things, and to always pursue that, ask questions, and and jump in. Uh, whether it is a book like Revelation that is uh, maybe not the easiest to interpret, uh, all the way through to uh, the law in the Old Testament and everything in between, uh, and how we go about looking at those things. We hope you found this series helpful. Uh, and hope that you return to this if you're ever like, okay, I need to go back over the tools to uh, looking at these things. Even this episode that focused in on a book, the hope with these episodes are that they are uh, that they provide you tools that you can go back to uh, and utilize and do some of your own digging and discovering and uh, ask your own questions and try to search for those answers. And uh, that's that's what we hope to accomplish here. Uh, also, we'd love to hear about the things that you find, uh, the questions that you have, uh, the stuff that you think about, what we've talked about, maybe some things we didn't talk about that you're like, hey, I've heard some of these things. C- could you talk about that as it relates to Revelation or or whatever? Uh, one reminder, again, you can reach us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com or our Facebook or uh, all other social media things as has already been teased especially tiktok i guess if you want to get a hold of spencer but i will not be there uh (laughs) ever (laughs) even if there is cool moon stuff being talked about (laughs) that's not enough to pull me in uh but that's that's the episode here we'll have a new series for you next time uh we do this hopefully here in just a couple of weeks Uh, until then i'm jack that's spencer we'll see you next time